know now, December 2nd, as I said earlier, December 2nd, the first Twitter file comes out, Mr. Taibbi. And I think there are five others, including the ones from Mr. Schellenberger. December 13th, the very first letter that the FTA, uh, FTC sends to Twitter after the Twitter files, 11 days after the first Twitter file. There have been five of them come out. The FTC's first demand in that first letter after the Twitter files come out is identify all journalists, I'm, I'm quoting, identify all journalists and other members of the media to whom Twitter worked with. You find that scary, Mr. Taibbi, that you got a federal government agency asking a private company, who in the press are you talking with? Yeah, I, I do find it scary. I, I, I think it's none of the government's business what, uh, which journalists a private company talks to and why. Um, I think every journalist should be concerned about that and the absence of interest in that issue by um, uh, my fellow colleagues in the mainstream media is an indication of how low the business has sunk. Uh, there was once a real esprit de corps and camaraderie uh, within media. Whenever one of us was uh, gone after, we all kind of rose to the challenge and supported. Used to be. Yeah, Used to be the case. Um, that is gone now. Uh, we, we don't protect one another. You know what another. else used to happen? Democrats used to care about protecting First Amendment free speech rights too. Now it's like, okay, if you're attacking, and I said this on the House floor, I said, don't think they won't come for you. Oh, the, the, the big tech, big media, the cancel culture, they may come for Republicans and conservatives now, but they never, the mob is never satisfied. They will keep coming. Mr. Schellenberger, you know who the chair of the FTC is? Uh, not personally. Lena Kahn. Lena Kahn. You know who she used to work for? My understanding is the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, she's worked for these folks. The same folks have been attacking you today. Same folks. Chair of the FTC. Worked for them. Here's what they said. Here's what she said in, one, in a letter where they ask about who these journalists. Again, they named four personally, four journalists by name. You were two of the four. As I said before, I think it's, it's frankly courageous and brave of you to show up today when you know the federal government's got an eye on you personally. Here's what they asked for in that letter. Any credentialing or background check Twitter has done on journalists. Now think about that. The federal government is saying we want you to do a background check on members of the press. Freedom of the press mentioned in the First Amendment. And they're doing back. They want Twitter to do a background check on you before they can talk to you in America? The FTC, led by Lena Khan, who used to work for these guys, is asking that question? Now, 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 now we know, now we all know why you guys said at the outset, this is the most chilling story. And you guys are New York Times bestsellers, award-winning uh, journalists, but in all your, your time in the, in the journalism field, this issue, most important. And how this, I think, what'd you call it, Mr. Schellenberg, this is complex, what'd you call it, the Censorship industrial complex. Totally. This web of censorship, big government, big tech, NGOs, all this web of censorship that Mr. Bishop was getting into in his line of questioning. That's what this committee is going to get to. And that's not right or left. That's not, this is just right or wrong. This is wrong. We know it's wrong. And it's about protecting the First Amendment. I yield back. I now recognize the, Myself. the, the, the ranking member uh, for her five minutes. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Chair. Um, Mr. Taibbi, the emails and documents you've produced all date to around 2020, is that correct? No, uh, there's a significant portion of them from 2017 and 2018 as well. Thank you. And Mr. Schellenberger, what dates do you have? I, I believe that we had emails including 2022, 2021, yeah, 2020. That's also true. 2019. 
And Mr. Taibbi said 2018. Do you have 2018 as well? I, I can't remember. Okay, thank you. Um, Mr. Taibbi, how many employees did Twitter employ in approximately the time period of 2020-2021? Do you know? I don't. Okay, it was 7,500. Do you know how many were in its legal team during that time period? I don't. I'm sorry. And do you know how many were in its public policy team? I don't. Mr. Schellenberger, do you know how many were employed in content moderation during that time? I do not know. Okay. So we're looking at thousands of employees overall, and hundreds in offices were the focus of emails and documents you released. Um, I will ask you, Mr. Schellenberger, how many emails did Mr. Musk give you access to? I mean, we, we, we went through thousands of emails. Did he give you access to all of the emails for the time we, period in which? Yeah, I, we never had a single, I never had a single request denied. And not only that, but the amount of files that we were given were so voluminous that there mm -hmm. was no way that anybody could have gone through them beforehand. And we never found an instance where anything, there was any evidence that anything had been taken out. Okay, so you would, you would believe that you have probably millions of emails and documents, right? That's correct, would you say? Uh, I don't, millions no, I think the number's less too that. high. Yeah. Okay, 100,000? That's probably closer. Probably, yeah. probably close to 100,000 that both of you are saying. Yet, in your, the Twitter files, Mr. Taibbi, you've produced only 338 of those 100,000 emails. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And then who gave you access to these emails? Uh, who was the individual that uh, gave you permission to access the emails? Well, the attribution from my story is sources at Twitter, and that's what I'm going to refer to. Okay. Uh, did Mr. Musk contact you, Mr. Taibbi? Again, the attribution from my story is sources at Twitter. Mr. Schellenberger, did Mr. Musk contact you? Uh, actually, no. I was brought in by my friend Barry Weiss, and so this story, there's been a lot of misinformation. So Mr. Weiss brought you in. Mr. Taibbi, Ms. Weiss, thank you. Mr. Yeah. Taibbi, have you had conversations with Elon Musk? I have. Okay. Uh, Mr. Taibbi, did Mr. Musk place any conditions on the would use the of the Would the gentlelady yield for a second? Uh, as long as my time is not used. Are you, are you trying to get journalists to No, I'm not trying to get, sources? no, I'm not. Well, I am asking, like no, well, if you will let me finish. Are you, and you had conversations with him, not, you said you weren't going to agree to who your sources were. I'm not asking you your source. I'm asking you if you had conversations with the owner of Twitter. And did Mr. Musk place any conditions on your use of the emails or documents? No, the, in fact, I was told uh, explicitly that um, we were, uh, given license to look at present-day Twitter as well as past Twitter. So you had unfiltered access to Twitter's internal communications and systems? Yes. Would those include HR files? No, 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 no. We, 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 didn't, we did not have access to personal information of any kind. In uh -huh. fact, we, we signed a waiver um, uh, for Have you produced that waiver to the uh, members of anyone on this committee or any staff? I'd be happy to have you? it. I haven't, but I'd be happy. Have you uh, given all of the access to what you were given by your source to this committee? No, and I would never do that. Okay. I didn't ask if you were given the committee, uh, the individuals, but all of the files. No, you have not? No. So what we're getting is your dissemination, your decision as to what was important and not important in that, correct? Which is true in every news is story. In every story. But you have files that you say you are sharing, but those files are just a smaller period of the files. Is that correct? Yes. yes? There, okay, thank you. And the FTC investigation of Twitter, you knew that they were investigating Twitter before the time period that Mr. Musk came on? 
I was aware of it, yes. And the FTC was concerned with user data being hacked or used? Is that correct, that they didn't have enough um, checks and balances on that data? Well, I, I wasn't privy to that part. Have of you seen the consent decree? No, I have not. Okay, well, the consent decree is concerned with user data, which would be probably the reason that they were concerned if they're giving files to journalists that potentially data about users as well as data about individuals and employees would be given to them. My understanding um, so is So I didn't ask didn't a ask question. Them. I didn't ask you a question, sir. Okay? So do you know that Elon Musk paid $44 billion for Twitter? Is that correct, Mr. Schellenberger? Were you aware of that? Yes, I read that. And did you know that he received that um, part of the funding from Saudi Arabia as well as Qatar? Uh, I, I heard that. And did you know that one of those individuals who owns um, Beyonce, was the company, um, but Binance, while he has a Canadian citizenship, he is a, a Chinese national. Did, were you aware of that? I did not know that. Okay. And that he uh, stated that that was for the cause. But thank you very much for answering my questions. I yield back. Chair, I'll recognize the gentlelady from Wyoming for five minutes. Will the gentlelady yield for 20 seconds? Yes. I, I, I thank the gentlelady for yielding. I just think this is interesting. First, the, the FTC is asking for your background, and now the, the ranking member of the Committee on the Weaponization of Government is asking for your sources. If I never asked raise, them for their sources. Yes, you I did, did not we, ask for sources. You know I asked the if they were talking not, to the Elon Musk, not, not and they said that they were not talking. Well, you are not well, going to say I've asked back for to, sources. I will, I will uh, yield back to the thank gentlelady. You. I thank her for yielding. With respect, you. you asked me who gave me who, who gave me I asked files. you who gave it to you, and when she said that they were your sources, I then asked you if you had spoken with Elon Musk. I did not ask you who those sources were. General, the gentlelady the from record. Wyoming the is recognized, correct. and she will receive an additional 20 seconds. Uh, the gentlelady is recognized for five minutes of questioning. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to our witnesses for being here today and all of your important work that has, you have put into writing the Twitter files. Uh, thank you for your willingness to come here and be subjected to the kind of abuse that we've observed when all you're trying to do is talk about the importance of the First Amendment and why the federal government should not be doing what they did and what has been evidenced in the Twitter files. I often say that sunshine is the best disinfectant. And boy, after listening to you and reading the reports that I have, does our federal government need to be fumigated. Mr. Taibbi, I'd like to focus on Twitter files part nine, Twitter and other government agencies, as I think a lot of the evidence you present in this section touches on the major takeaways that are so important for Americans to understand about the seriousness of what was found in the Twitter files. In your testimony describing the cooperation between the federal government and tech companies like Twitter, you stated, quote, a focus of this growing network is making lists of people whose opinions, beliefs, associations, or sympathies are deemed to be misinformation disinformation or malinformation, end quote. What's interesting to me is that what is missing from that list is the word unlawful. That's true, yes. And so it notably seems to be missing from the FBI's lexicon. In part nine of the Twitter files, Mr. Taibbi notes that the main conduit sending requests to Twitter would routinely label these flags as violations of Twitter's terms of service. Even Jim Baker, a Twitter employee at the time and someone who is allegedly a former general counsel of the FBI, stated, quote, but also odd that they are searching for violations of our policies. Mr. Taibbi, what was about the what was the approximate percentage 
of the FBI requests to Twitter being based on the justification it vi that, the tw that the tweet violated the company's terms of service? Uh, Ms. Congressman, I would say that that was a standard disclosure or a standard disclaimer in almost all the communications from the FBI to Twitter. Uh, they would, there would usually be a line in there saying something like, for your consideration, we believe the following 207 accounts may have violated your terms of service. Um, but notably, they, they were, they very rarely focused on words like truth or inaccuracy. Uh, very often they used the words malinformation, misinformation, or disinformation. Uh, and so I think they were trying to shift the focus from one idea to the other. Okay, I think that's interesting as well. What do you make of the finding that the FBI founded its responsibility to police violation of a private company's terms of service as a priority over policing violations of U.S. federal law? We've, there, there were a couple of very telling emails that we, um, we published. Uh, one was by the, uh, a lawyer named Sasha Cardiel, where the company was being so overwhelmed by... Um, by request from the FBI. And in fact, they, they gave each other a sort of digital high five after one batch, saying that was a monumental undertaking to clear all of these. But she noted that, that she believed that, that the FBI was essentially um, creating, doing word searches keyed to Twitter's terms of service, um, looking for violations of terms of service specifically so that they could make recommendations along those lines, which we found interesting. Do you believe it's the FBI's responsibility to police the terms of service for a private company? I do not. I, th I think you cannot have a state-sponsored anti-disinformation effort um, and also without directly striking at the whole concept of free speech. I think the two ideas are in direct conflict. Uh, and this is a fundamental misunderstanding, I think, of a lot of the people who get into this world. Some of them, I believe, in a well-meaning way. I think they, they're actually trying to accomplish something positive, but they don't understand what free speech means and what happens when you do this. It undermines the whole concept um, that truth doesn't come from, uh, isn't mandated, that we arrive at it through debate and discussion. Well, in fact, wouldn't you agree with me that the First Amendment is broader than Twitter's terms of service? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And wouldn't you also agree with me that the FBI is responsible for complying with the First Amendment, not Twitter's terms of service? I would hope so, yes. Yeah. Uh, you also highlighted the presence of people like Jim Baker at Twitter. And again, I've noted that he is allegedly a former FBI employee. Part nine also speaks of a former, a former other government association employees working at Twitter. What was the extent to which you found former FBI or other intelligence community employees working at Twitter? And did you find it odd? Uh, there was a significant quantity of people um, who had come from the intelligence world um, or who had worked at state agencies. In fact, that was a very common method by which um, members of uh, people who are currently working in government would reach out to Twitter. Uh, for instance, we found an email by um, a current State Department official who reached out to a former State Department official asking that 14 uh, ordinary Americans have their accounts deleted. That was in a recent Twitter files um, uh, release. 
So yes, there's, there's an extraordinary number of these people. A lot of them come from the intelligence world, which we did find unusual, I think. Okay, General, thank you very much, and I yield back. Gentlelady's time has expired. Uh, I thank her. The gentleman from California is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I, I still try to figure out where all of this is going to go. But we've heard a lot from our Republican colleagues uh, claiming that somehow all of this interaction has led to uh, Twitter censoring uh, conservative voices. And I really want to look at what the evidence is that that has or has not happened. In 2020, Twitter commissioned an objective study to examine whether its algorithms disproportionately promotes conservative or liberal voices. This was a massive study by researchers from the University of Cambridge and Berkeley. The analysis examined millions of Twitter accounts and 6.2 million news articles that were shared within the United States. The study results were quite clear. Twitter's algorithms actually amplifies conservative voices far more than liberal voices. So whatever comes of this question about pressure from the federal government, at least up until 2020, it didn't have an effect. A separate study, this one from the Indiana University, found that partisan accounts, especially conservative accounts, tend to receive more, more followers and follow more automated accounts. So Mr. Talibi and Mr. Schallenberger, are you familiar with these studies? I am. I am. Yes. Very good. Then you know that whatever you may be trying to uh, tell us, the effect on Twitter didn't happen. Um, no, uh, I don't no, agree. Excuse me. It's, it's my time. Thank you. Uh, I can also give you many real analytical studies based on actual evidence. But since I have only five minutes, Mr. Chairman, if I might enter into the record these studies of what actually is going on at Twitter with regard to um, censorship or not censorship. Mr. Chairman, may I enter those into the file? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I take that silence as a yes. Did you identify the document? I'm sorry. Certainly. Two do uh, these documents, uh, well, studies that were done by universities uh, and we usually take a little bit, it takes a little bit more for unanimous consent than these documents, but without objection, we'll accept them into the record. Thank you, Mr. Ch Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, these studies found that uh, to the extent that far-right accounts are being suspended, it's not because of their ideology, but because they are spreading conspiracy theories like QAnon. You can see those up on the board. Uh, you know, talk about nonsense. QAnons, are you really ready for these dots? Where in the country is gone? The rest of the world will go. Q is real. On and on. They're up there, and uh, they're now part of the file also. Uh, this type of speech that uh, perhaps our Republican colleagues believe uh, social media platforms, all of whom, all of whom, by the way, are private companies, not government, are somehow obligated to post. No matter how crazy, how offensive a post might be, these private companies presumably must advance the lies, conspiracy theories, personal attacks promoted by radicals. Now, I'm pretty sure that if the Democrats held a hearing today to force Fox News to post certain content, my Republican colleagues would be up in arms. And this is particularly ironic because we know for a fact 
that Fox News does spread disinformation and does so while knowing that the material is false. We've learned from the Dominion lawsuit that Fox hosts lied about the 2020 election. Its executives knew they were lying, and yet they were allowed to continue peddling their lies. Now, here's a reporter speaking to this issue, a Fox News reporter. He said, dangerously insane. There's two Fox executives describing Fox's decision to push forward election lies as chasing the nuts off the cliff. There are two other quotes, two other tweets that I think we ought to be aware of, and Fox News was promoting it. They were promoting Trump's lies. Quote up there, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, will be wild. A call to arms, and all of us in this building know the result of that call. A second one, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what needed to be done to protect our country. This is the speech that my Republican colleagues would have us to believe is being wrongly, quote unquote, censored by social media companies. It's offensive, it's absurd. No private company has an obligation to amplify anything, and especially not messages that strike at the heart of our democracy. I yield back. Uh, gentleman, the gentleman yields back. The gentleman from Utah is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Thank you, witnesses, for being here. Uh, I suppose this is maybe a little bit outside your comfort zone. You didn't find yourself with this kind of attention when you began this endeavor, but uh, I appreciate the courage and the commitment you've made to doing that. We may not agree on a lot of things when it comes to policy and politics, but I think we agree on our concern regarding the topic today. And uh, I'll actually follow on from uh, my Democratic friend and colleague and the things that he has said, because I agree with him. Private companies, I mean Twitter, Facebook, they can ban whoever they want. They can mute. They can deplatform. They can set up whatever policy they want, and they have the ability to do that. I don't care about that. I agree with that. They should have that authority. The thing that we're concerned about is when the federal government, by proxy, essentially contracts this out because the federal government can't ban speech. They can define time and place, but they cannot ban content. And anyone would be foolish to think that when the FBI comes to a private company and highlights speech, and then would expect them to do nothing, of course they would respond to that. The FBI knew they would respond to that. The FBI expected them to respond to that. And I, I could use a couple analogies if I could, and they sound dramatic, but they're exactly right. It's illegal for the United States to assassinate a foreign leader. It would be illegal for the United States to pay $3.2 million to someone to go assassinate a foreign leader. It's illegal in some cases for the United States, or not illegal, but we would have to have a policy debate whether we would invade another country. It would be illegal for the United States to pay a private company like the Wagner Group in Russia to go and fight their battles for them. And that's exactly what the FBI did here. They said, well, we can't do this ourselves. We'll contract it out. We'll launder this effort through another company. And I would just ask you to respond to that. Do you think I'm overly dramatic or do you think I'm wrong in my characterization of what we see here? 
I don't. I think you're. I think that's absolutely correct. Uh, freedom of speech is the foundation for our democracy, and what we've seen here is federal government putting extraordinary amounts of pressure both on Twitter and Facebook. And we haven't talked about Facebook, but we we now know that we have the we have the White House demanding that Facebook take down factual information, and Facebook doing that. And we and with Matt's thread this morning, we saw. Uh, the government contractors demanding the same thing of Twitter. Accurate information, they said, that needed to be taken down I, in I, order to advance a narrative. And I have to interrupt just to agree with you. For heaven's sakes, again, we've heard over here, well, they got to take, you know, Fox News lights. There's a reason that 20% of the people trust media. Uh, oh my gosh, if you want to have a conversation about lies and deception in the media, I would love to engage in that because we've seen plenty of it over the last six years, and it's not coming from just Fox News. New York Times, CBS, NBC, every single one of them were saying things that they knew was not true. And they didn't say it once, they said it for years. And the, and the White House, again, trying to stifle things that they know is, is true, but it doesn't fit their narrative. And I gotta give one illustration in the, in the few minute, or minute I have left. When you have an agent, Mr. Chan, who goes to his Twitter and says, please see below list of Twitter accounts which we believe violate your terms of service. I mean, how do you respond to that and defend that? Yeah, FBI should be looking at other private companies' policies and then highlighting, hey, these people might be violating your policies. E either one of you, uh, Mr. Taibbi. If I could, yeah, no, I think there's, thank you, Mr. Congressman, and there's an important point, um, you know, in conjunction with our own research, there's a foundation, the Foundation for Freedom Online, which, um, you know, there's a very telling video that they uncovered where the director of Stanford's um, Election Integrity Partnership talks about how um, CISA, the DHS agency, uh, didn't have the capability to do election monitoring um, and so that they kind of stepped in to fill, quote, fill the gaps legally um, before that capability could be uh, amped up. And what we see in the Twitter files is that Twitter executives did not distinguish between DHS or CISA and this group EIP. For instance, we would see a communication that said, um, from CISA escalated by EIP. So they were essentially identical in the eyes of the company uh, EIP, in, in, by its own data, and this is in reference to what, what you brought up, Mr. Congressman, um, according to their own data, they significantly uh, targeted more dis what they call disinformation on the right than on the left um, by a factor, I think, of, uh, of about 10 to 1. Uh, so, and I, and I say that it's not a Republican at all. It's just a fact of what we're looking at. Um, so yes, the, we have come to the, to the realization that th this bright line that we imagine that exists between, say, the FBI or the DHS or the GEC and these private companies is, is illusory, and that it, what's more important is this constellation of kind of quasi-private organizations that do this work. Well, and we're over time, so I'll conclude with reemphasizing this. By a factor of 10 to 1, they tried to mute conservative thought. And the federal government cannot contract out suppression of free expression. Gentlemen, thank you. Thank you. Gentlemen, time has expired. The gentleman from Texas is recognized for five minutes.
Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I get that last time. I apologize, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Taibbi, um, I want to follow up a little bit on the ranking member's questions. Um, when was the first time that Mr. Musk approached you about writing uh, uh, the Twitter files? Uh, again, Congresswoman, that would... Uh, I just need a date, sir. But I can't give it to you, unfortunately, because... This, this is a question of sourcing, and I don't give up. I'm it's a journalist. A, I don't reveal my source. It's a question of chronology. No, that's a question because of sourcing. Because you earlier said that, that someone had sent you through the Internet some message about whether or not you would be interested in some information. Yes, and I refer to that person as a source. So you're not going to tell us when Musk first approached you? Again, Congresswoman, so you're, asking, you me to yes you're no. asking a journalist to reveal so a source. So then you consider Mr. Musk to be the direct source of all this? No, now you're, you're trying to get me to say that he is the source. I, 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 well, I just can't answer your question. Well, he is or he isn't. If you're telling me you can't answer because it's your source, well, then that the only logical conclusion is that he is, in fact, your source. Well, you're free to conclude that. Well, sir, I just don't understand. You can't have it both ways, but let's move on. Cause well, no, he can. He's a journalist. Can't no, he can't, because either Musk is the source and he can't talk about it, or Musk is not the source. And if Musk is not the source, then he can discuss No one has yielded. The gentlelady's the out of order. You don't and get to speak. And she's out of order because he's interrupted. The gentlelady's not recognized. You're not recognized. He has not said that. What he has said is he's not going to reveal his source. And the fact that Democrats are pressuring him to do so is such a violation. We're asking him about his conversations with Musk. Has not yielded you time. You don't get I have to not just talk yielded time her. to anybody. I want to reclaim my time, and I would ask the chairman to give me back some of the time because of the interruption. Mr. Chairman, I am asking you if you will give me the seconds that I lost. We will give you that 10 seconds. Thank you. Now, let's talk about another uh, item that you, when you responded to the ranking member, you said that you had free license to look at everything, but yet you yourself posted on your, your um, I guess it's kind of like a web page, and don't quite understand what Substack is, but uh, that what I can say is that in exchange for the opportunity to cover a unique and explosive story, I had to agree to certain conditions. What were those conditions? She asked you that question, and you said you had none, but you yourself posted that you had conditions. No, the, the conditions, as I've explained multiple times. No, uh, sir, you've not explained. You told her, her in response to her question that you had no conditions. In fact, you, you kind of used the word license, that you were free to look at all of them, all 100,000 emails. I was, the question was posed, was, was I free to, to write about? Sir, did you have any conditions? The condition was that we published Sir, did you Twitter. have any conditions, yes or no? A simple question. Yes. All right, could you tell us what conditions those were? The conditions were an attribution, sources at Twitter, and that we, we break any news on Twitter. But you didn't break it on Twitter. Did you send the file that you released today to Twitter first? Did I send the? Sir, actually, I'm I did. You yes. Yeah. You, you did. You send it to Twitter first. The Twitter files. That was one of the thread? conditions. Yes or no, sir. The Twitter files thread actually did come out first. But sir, you you said earlier that you had to attribute all the sources to Twitter first. What you released today? Did you send that to Twitter first? No, no, no. I post. I posted it on Twitter first. First, sir. Or did you give it to the ranking member, to the chairman of the committee or the staff of the committee first? 
Well, that's not breaking the story. That's giving, yes, I did, I did give. Uh, so you gave all the information that you did not give to the Democrats. You gave it to the Republicans first. Then you put it on Twitter? Actually, no, the chronology is a little bit confused. Well, then, it's more then tell or less us the what the chronology time. was. I believe the thread came out first. Where? On Twitter. On Twitter. So then you afterwards gave it to the Republicans and not the Democrats? Yes, because I'm submitting it for the record as my, as my statement. Did you give it to them in advance? I gave it to them today. You gave it to them today, but you still have not given anything to the Democrats. Well, I'll, I'll, again, I'll move on. And I wanted to ask uh, Mr. Schellenberger the same question, sir. When did you first uh, visit with or get contacted by Mr. Musk? I'm not going to reveal my sources, but like I said, I was invited by Barry Weiss. I'm not was, asking for sources, sir. I'm just asking yeah, for chronology. I was, when did you first make contact with Mr. Musk? I don't know the exact date. Was it? It was December. It was December. December of, well, there's a lot of Decembers in December history. December of last which, year. Which December? December of last year, ma'am. Last year, the 2022? Uh, yes. All right. Now, in, um, in your discussion, in your answer, you also said that you were invited by a friend, Barry Weiss? My friend, Barry Weiss. So this friend works for Twitter, or what is, what is her? Um... She's a journalist. Sir, I didn't ask you a question. I'm, I'm now asking Mr. Schellenberger a question. Please yes, ma'am. Barry Weiss is a journalist. I'm sorry, sir? She's a journalist. She's a journalist. So you work in concert with her? Um, yeah. Do you know when she first um, was contacted by Mr. Musk? I, I don't know. You don't know. So you're in this as a threesome? Um, there was many more people involved than that. There was many more people involved with it. Are you being paid to be here today, either through consulting fees, no. campaign contributions to your next not. run? Gentle ladies, time is expired. Absolutely not. Gentle Absolutely. ladies, time right, is expired. Thank you. I just, I don't know what to say other than I'll, I'll recognize the gentleman from North Dakota for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I'll yield my five minutes oh, to I you. Appreciate, I appreciate the gentleman uh, yielding. Uh, I do think it's worth pointing out that, you know, I have co-sponsored, I think some of my colleagues have co-sponsored the SHIELD Act in previous Congresses with Democrats to protect what we see them trying to do today, protect journalists from having to reveal their sources to government. That used to be a shared position in the Congress. Unfortunately, as we're seeing now, multiple occasions, it's not the, it's not the position anymore. Uh, Mr. Schellenberg, I want to go to Twitter files part seven. I related a lot of what you put in there in my opening statement. And I want to give you as much time as you want, because I'm going to read the very first sentence, because something jumped out at me when I read the first sentence in Twitter files number seven, the FBI and the Biden laptop. You say this, how the FBI and intelligence community discredited factual information about the Biden foreign business dealings, both after and before New York Post revealed the content of his laptop on October 14th, 2020. And what kind of jumped out at me was the way you framed it, because you did it backwards from what it's normally said. Normally you would say, the sentence would read, foreign business dealings both before and after. But I assume you did that for a reason, because in fact, I think the next sentence you say social media companies discredit leaked information about Hunter Biden before and after. You use the normal customary way in the second sentence, but the first sentence 
strikes me as you were trying to emphasize the before component of that statement. And I want you to just walk us through why you said that, because when I read it, it certainly was an operation uh, b both before and after, as you said, after and before. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Reading through the whole sweep of events, I do not know the extent to which the influence operation aimed at pre-bunking the Hunter Biden laptop was coordinated. I don't know who all was involved, but what we saw was you saw Aspen and Stanford many months before then saying, don't cover the material in the hack and leak without emphasizing the fact that it could be disinformation. Okay, so they're priming journalists to not cover a future hack and leak in the way that journalists have long been trained to with the, in the, in the tradition of the Pentagon Papers, made famous by the, the Steven Spielberg movie. They were saying, cover the fact that it, that it probably came from the Russians. Then you have the former general counsel to the FBI, Jim Baker, the former deputy chief of staff to the FBI, both arriving at Twitter in the summer of 2020, which I find, what an interesting coincidence. Then when the New York Post publishes its first article on October 14th, it's Jim Baker who makes the most strenuous argument within Twitter, multiple emails, multiple messages saying, this doesn't look real, uh, there's people, there's intelligence experts saying that this could be Russian disinformation. He is the most strenuous person inside Twitter arguing that it's probably Russian disinformation. The internal evaluation by Yoel Roth, who testified in front of this committee, was that it was what it looked to be, which was that it was not a result of a hack and leak operation. And why did he think that? Because the New York Post had published the FBI subpoena taking the laptop in December of 2019, and they published the agreement that the laptop computer store owner, the computer store owner rather, had with Hunter Biden that gave him permission after he abandoned the laptop to use it however he wanted. So there really wasn't much doubt about the provenance of that laptop. But you had Jim Baker making a strenuous argument. And then of course, you get to a few days after the October 14th release, you have the President of the United States echoing what these, these former intelligence community officials were saying, which is that it looked like a Russian influence operation. Yeah. <clears throat> so they were, they were claiming that the laptop was made public by a conspiracy theory. And the conspiracy theory that somehow the Russians got it, and they, right. they and basically, the they convinced Yoel Roth that it was they convinced him of this wild hack and leak story that somehow the Russians stole it, got the information, gave it to the computer store, and it was bizarre. So you read that chain of events, and it appears as though there is an organized influence operation to pre-bunk. Why? Why do you think they could predict the time, the method, and the person? Why could the FBI predict it? I'm, it's, well, they it's they, they, not only did they predict it, they predicted it, so did the Aspen Institute. Yeah. Seemed like everyone yeah. was in the know saying, here's what's going to happen. We can read the future. Why do you think, how do you think they were able to do that? I, I, the, I think the most important fact to know is that the FBI had that laptop in December 2019. They were also spying on Rudy Giuliani when he got the laptop and when he gave it to the New York Post. Now, maybe the FBI agents who were going to Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook and to Twitter executives and warning of a hack and leak, potentially involving Hunter Biden, maybe those guys didn't have anything to do with the guys that had maybe. the laptop. We don't know that. I know. But I have to say, as a newcomer to this, as somebody that thought it was Russian disinformation in 2020, everybody I knew thought it was Russian, 
I was shocked to see that period, that series of events going on. It looked to me like a deliberate influence operation. I don't have the proof of it, but the circumstantial evidence is, is pretty disturbing. It's pretty overwhelming. Thank you, uh, Mr. Schellenberg. Now recognize the gentleman from New York, Mr. Goldman, for five minutes. Oh, I think it's uh, Mr. Allred first. I'm oh, I'm sorry. I, I, you, just, you just walked in. Re recognize the gentleman from Texas. Go right ahead. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair. I'd like to ask um, unanimous consent to enter a few tweets into the record. Sure. Let's Can you identify the tweets? Let's see. I think staff should have them. Can we put the tweets up on the screen? Let's take a look at a couple of tweets from Kanye West, who now goes by Ye, but at the time of these tweets had 32 million followers. Mr. Taibbi, can you read the tweet on left, can you see the text there? I actually can't, my eyesight is not, is not so great. I'll read it to you. It says, I'm a bit sleepy tonight, but when I wake up, I'm going death con three on Jewish people, in all caps. The funny thing is, I actually can't be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jew. Also, you guys have toured with me and tried to blackball anyone who ever opposes your agenda. And can you see the tweet next to it? I can, yes. It's a... Would you describe it? It's a Star of David, the swastika in the middle of it? Yes. Should those tweets have been taken down by Twitter? I think it's a difficult question. Hate speech is protected in the United States. Um, one of my heroes growing up was the Ukraine-born author Isaac Babel. He gave a speech at the first Soviet Writers' Congress, and he was asked if any important rights had been taken away. And he sarcastically answered no. The only rights that have been taken away are the right to be wrong. And the crowd laughed, but he was making an important point, which is that in a free country, you can't have freedom without the freedom to be wrong. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to a couple of other tweets, not from somebody with 32 million followers. This one says, Elon now controls Twitter. Unleashed unleash the racial slurs, K-word and N-word. The other one says, I can freely express how much I hate in words now. Thank you, Elon. See, these tweets were taken down, even by Elon Musk's Twitter, and they should have been, because they're hate speech. And they lead to real-world reactions. In fact, in the 12 hours after Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, hate speech of all kinds spiked on Twitter, including a 500% increase in the use of the N-word. And it's not just online. From 2021, from 2020 to 2021, hate crimes rose almost 44% in major cities. So hate speech online has real impacts in life. And so does election misinformation and propaganda online. Now, Mr. Taibbi, I've, I've read a lot of your work. I respect some of it. But you've cast a lot of doubt on Russian mis uh, interference in our elections, and today, you have virtually alleged a vast government conspiracy to censor speech. But I can tell you that the not threat alleged. to our democracy, I'm not asking you a question. I'll let you know when I do. I'll t I can tell you that the threat to our democracy is very real. And it's not just the elections that get all the headlines. In 2018, in a congressional race, two Kremlin-aligned foreign nationals named Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman succeeded in funneling illegal Russian money to a Trump-aligned super PAC that spent $1.3 million to support the Republican candidate. That was my election. 
My neighbors in East Dallas saw advertisements online, in their mailbox, and on their TV paid with Russian money. That's not my opinion. That's a fact proven in the Southern District of New York. Both Parnas and Fruman were convicted to 21 months and one year respectively for conspiring to make political contributions by a foreign national along with another of other campaign finance related violations. We live in an information age where malign actors do want to use social media to influence our elections, both big, the ones that you've spent a long time talking about, and small, like mine. Mr. Congressman, and it should be a question? bipartisan goal. No, you don't get to ask questions here. Okay. It should be a bipartisan goal to ensure that Americans and only Americans determine the outcome of our elections, not fear-mongering. And I think, I hope that you can actually take this with you, because I honestly hope that you will grapple with this. That it may be possible that if we can take off the tinfoil hat, that there's not a vast conspiracy, but that ordinary folks and national security agencies responsible for our security are trying their best to find a way to make sure that our online discourse doesn't get people hurt or see our democracy undermined. And that the very rights that you think they're trying to undermine, they may be trying to protect. And I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Gentleman from Kentucky, Mr. Massey, is recognized for five minutes. I want to talk about the weaponization of the CDC against the American people, and this overlaps with one of the Twitter files, number 13 by my count, actually by Alex Berenson, not one of our two witnesses, but I would like your comment on it. A week before Christmas 2020, the vaccines came out, the FDA curated the Pfizer trial results, and then the CDC curated the FDA's opinion. The CDC said in their MMWR, which is never peer-reviewed, they're very proud that it's not peer-reviewed, they treat it like science, it's not science. They said that the vaccine was 92% efficacious for people who had already had COVID. The Pfizer trial data said no such thing. In fact, it, there was no support for that claim. So I called up the head of the CDC, recorded the conversation, the head in Washington, DC. She said she'd get the top scientists on the line. There was a snowstorm that day, so I was impressed. She got this top scientist on the line. They said I was Eagle Eye Massey. They couldn't believe how that statement had made it into their report and that I was absolutely correct. There was no support for it. So uh, I said, how are you gonna fix it? You're gonna redact it? You're gonna change it? What are you gonna do? They said, we'll do all of that. I said, great. A month later, it was still on their website. I made some more phone calls. They brought in a, an old hand, an old fixer, Dr. Shushat. These are her notes. With, uh, of her phone call with me about natural immunity in January when I called him out on it again. These are the entirety of her notes that were obtained uh, in my FOIA from somebody, a third party. Um, I took all of my recordings, released them to Cheryl Atkinson. She, she blew the whistle on this. People, a lot of people have forgotten about it. Uh, here's, here's why... I find it interesting, and I'm gonna tie it into the Twitter files. And by the way, I told them, I was not anti-vax. I said, the problem with your story is there's a misallocation of vaccines which are not available for all the old people in Kentucky, but you got young people in Kentucky taking them because you're telling them on the website, even if you've had COVID, go get it. So that was my complaint. Um, on May, 20, or May 10th, 2021, 
Todd O'Boyle, this name will come up in a Twitter file later. He is the top lobbyist of Twitter's Washington office who was also his Twitter's point of contact in the White House. He encouraged the CDC to enroll in the uh, partner support program. Oh, okay, the CDC is now a partner with Twitter because they're in the partner support program. They, he said, in the future, that's the best way to get a spreadsheet like this reviewed. Now, this is an email from uh, between Todd O'Boyle and, uh, and the folks at CDC. By the way, let me, let me uh, talk to this, too. This is, these are more of my conversations with the CDC, completely redacted the subject thereof. Uh, next, next one, please. I also found as a result of the FOIA, CDC tracks every tweet that a congressman puts out. Not just Republican, but Democrat. They keep a spreadsheet, they make it every week. Uh, this showed up in the FOIA for me, because I'm in their spreadsheet that they track. Why is this interesting? Okay, so they're tracking congressmen's tweets at CDC. They're enrolled in the partner support uh, portal at, uh, at Twitter. And then I found, this is why, um, I found Alex Berenson's report very interesting because uh, what he found out is that Scott Gottlieb worked hard and, and Twitter complied, it looks like, to censor a tweet from a doctor about natural immunity. Guess what? On the same day that that doctor's tweet was censored, so were my tweets on natural immunity. Why is this important? What is, what is consequential about the date? This is three days after the military vaccine mandate came out and a week before the federal vaccine mandates came out, this truth was toxic to, to a narrative that Pfizer was spreading, that Joe Biden wanted out there so that he could force the vaccine on everybody, whether you had natural immunity or not. Now, I actually, you guys might not agree with me on this, I don't think the press gets special privileges on the First Amendment. I, think, I don't think Congress does. I think every American, by virtue of being an American, is, has the right to free speech enshrined in the Constitution. So I'm not so much worried that they, they uh, censored a, a congressman, but they disabled all the comments from my constituents. Those are the voices they squelched. And my beef is not with Twitter, but my beef is with the CDC and these federal agencies. And I encourage you all, if you can, to find more about this. And uh, do you have any, either of you have any comments on this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Gentleman's time expired, but the gentleman may, may uh, the Still witnesses had may three respond. seconds. The witnesses may respond. Okay. Just quickly, we found just yesterday a tweet from um, the, the Virality Project at Stanford, which was partnered with a, new, a number of government agencies on Twitter, where they talked explicitly about um, censoring stories of true vaccine side effects um, and other true stories that they felt uh, encouraged hesitancy. Now, the important... The, censoring true. Yeah, so they used the word true three times. Uh, in this email, and what's, what's notable about this is that it reflects the fundamental misunderstanding of this whole disinformation complex, anti-disinformation complex. They believe that ordinary people can't handle uh, difficult truths, and so they think that they need minders to separate out things that are controversial or difficult um, for them. And that's, again, that's totally contrary to what America is all about, I think. I'll just briefly add, this is very disturbing because what they're doing when they're putting these labels on there is they're actually also trying to discredit you. So it's not just, uh, it's a form of censorship, but it's also 
a, a disinformation campaign. And I think what Matt said is really important to understand. I mean, we went from, you go from a, a situation where we were fighting ISIS recruiting, and then it was Russian disinformation. And now they're in a situation where they're wanting to censor true information, accurate facts, because they're worried that people might behave in ways that they don't want them to. That involves mind reading at a level that is grossly inappropriate. I mean, I, I worry even about making this defense because let's remember, the First Amendment protects our right to be wrong. Mm -hmm. It protects our right to lie. I mean, it's bizarre to me that we would need to make a defense of the First Amendment and remind people that we have a right to be wrong. And being wrong, as Matt was explaining, is a big part of being a human being and having a democracy. So this is disturbing and chilling, and you're absolutely right to be outraged by it. There needs to be a full truth and reconciliation that I hope everybody would appreciate um, having on this issue, because a lot of bad behavior has come out about what they've done. Thank you. Yield back. Good job. Gentlemen's time has expired, but now I recognize the gentleman from uh, New York, Mr. Goldman. Actually, excuse me, it's Ms. Ms. Sanchez. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. And Mr. Chair, since that went over two minutes with them responding, will you give an additional time? There's a question at the end of someone, uh, the customer, if there's a question at the end of someone's five minutes and the witnesses haven't responded, uh, we'll give them time to do that. Many times you Up guys go over minutes. and then don't, we, there's no question. I questions. understand that, so, but two but minutes. We, okay, that's, thank that's you. That's customary, so we'll, we'll certainly do that. Gentlelady from California is recognized. Excuse me. I'd like to yield my time to Mr. Goldman. Thank you, uh, Ms. Sanchez. Um, Mr. Schellenberger, first, I'd just like to compliment you on your choice of tie today. Um, it seems like we were, we're on the same page. Um, I would also just like to respond to your last uh, point and just remind everyone that, of course, we all believe in the First Amendment, but the First Amendment applies to government prohibition of speech, not to private companies. Um, I want to talk about your Twitter files, number seven, Mr. Schellenberger. Uh, are you aware that Rudy Giuliani was the sole source of the hard drive obtained by the New York Post? That is my understanding. And are you aware that Rudy Giuliani had been openly cavorting with agents of Russian intelligence throughout 2020? That is also my understanding. Okay. Now, this was the same Russian agent who had been feeding information to Senators uh, Johnson and Grassley I might add. Um, but also, are you aware that Rudy Giuliani told the New York Times that he did not want anyone to do an analysis of the hard drive until it was published? I was not aware of that exactly, but... But you don't dispute it? I don't dispute it. And you're, are you aware um, that one of the New York Post reporters uh, for the Hunt and Bider story refused to put his byline on the story? Yes. And are you aware that Fox News called the story, quote, very sketchy, unquote? I'm aware that somebody at Fox News said that, yes. Correct. Brett Baer at Fox News said yes. that. Um, and are you aware that the FBI had nothing to do with Twitter's decision to pause the New York Post story? I am not aware of that. Okay, well, let me read you the testimony from Yoel Roth. Uh, at the hearing we had on February 8th. The FBI, quote, the FBI was quite careful and consistent to request review of the accounts, but not to cross the line into advocating for Twitter to take any particular action. And then Jim Baker said, in response to the chairman's question, 
when he asked, did you talk to the FBI about the Hunter Biden story? He said, to the best of my recollection, I did not talk to the FBI about the Hunter Biden story before that day. In other testimony, Yoel Roth said that the information that he received from the FBI had nothing to do with the Hunter Biden story. Now, are you aware that there was an analysis of the hard drive that was done by the Washington Post at a later date? My awareness is that multiple media organizations have done analyses and found the, including CBS, and found that it was indeed, the laptop was authentic and that nothing had been okay. changed on it. So let's just get something clear. The laptop that the FBI had is different than the hard drive that Rudy Giuliani gave to the New York Post. A hard drive, you agree with this, is a copy uh, from a laptop, right? Yes. And you are aware that hard drives can be altered, are you not? Of course. Okay. So are you aware that the Washington Post analysis of the hard drive showed that it had been altered? I have heard that, but I'm also saying CBS verified. Politico. And other media organizations have verified. I mean, well, we're not talking about, authentic, really we're not talking about authenticity. We're not talking about okay. authenticity. We're talking about whether it's been altered. Yeah. Okay, there's no question there's some material on the hard drive that is authentic and accurate, but are you aware that there's some material that is not? My understanding is that there are copies of the hard drive that have been tampered with and that media organizations, including CBS, have verified that, that the, the, la the laptop in question was not tampered with. I don't know what the laptop in question, but let's yeah. move on, because you said in your Twitter files, am I correct, that every single fact in the New York Post story was accurate? Yes. Okay. Um, do, you, do you recall that the first paragraph of that Post story said that then Vice President Joe Biden pressured Ukraine to fire its prosecutor general because he was investigating Burisma where Hunter Biden was on the board? Yes. Okay. I have here, which I'd like to enter into the record, the Trump Ukraine impeachment inquiry report, 300 pages by the House Intelligence Committee. Did you review this report before you said that every fact in this story was accurate? Without objection, the, the, the material be entered in the record. I, 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 did I read that before I wrote the Twitter files? No. Yeah. Okay. Aware of if content. you read this, you would have known that every single State Department and Trump administration expert on Ukraine said that Vice President Joe Biden, in, in uh, concert with the European Union and the IMF, was executing official U.S. policy by encouraging Ukraine to fire the prosecutor general because he was not prosecuting corruption and was not prosecuting companies like Burisma. So that story, notwithstanding your allegations, was false. And I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Uh, now recognize back? The, the chair now recognizes the gentleman from um, uh, Florida, Mr. Gates, for five minutes. Impeachment nostalgia always warms my heart, but we are here focused on a weaponized government, a whole-of-government approach that has been turned against the American people. And while Rudy Giuliani may have been running around with the laptop in 2020, what is an indisputable fact is that the FBI had the laptop in 2019. And it appears that the last round of questioning misses the boat, that it's true. The information is authentic. The pictures, the videos, the emails, there hasn't been a single allegation that there is a single, do single doctored email. Unlike what we saw before the FISA courts, where the FBI itself was doctoring emails to try to smear President Trump. But I, I have to get to 
a question I'm amazed hasn't been asked of the two of you. This FTC consent decree, where it is government action subject to rigorous scrutiny under First Amendment standards, government action demanding that your names be listed. How did it feel when you found out that you were being expressly targeted by a government document based on your reporting? It was chilling. I mean, it's disturbing. I, I never thought that would happen in the United States of America, to be perfectly honest. I've been in a bunch, I've lived in a bunch of authoritarian countries, I've visited a lot of authoritarian countries, never thought this kind of thing would be going on here. And the nexus to authoritarianism is the desire to control the nature of truth itself. Our understandings change about things. We learn new things. We challenge prior assumptions. But if a bunch of people in Washington, D.C. get to decide what the truth is and then enforce it on the country and then punish and target those who report on their conduct, we are drifting more toward that. How did you feel, Mr. Tybee, when you saw your name? I was uh, upset, obviously. Um, I... I lived in uh, Russia during the 90s and early 2000s. I was there when Putin took power. I was friends with a group of uh, very brave, uh, muckraking reporters in Russia, many of whom didn't make it. A few of them um, were murdered after Putin came to power. So I've always been conscious of how the risks that other reporters take in other countries are incredibly severe, and that's one of the reasons why I'm motivated to protect the First Amendment, because our, our country has the best protections for reporters in the world. Um, but this kind of thing, where the government is looking for information about reporters, it's usually a canary in the coal mine that something worse is coming in terms of uh, an effort to exercise control over the press. And so on that level, it's, it's absolutely disturbing. Also, the Aspen Institute report that we, we uh, published today, uh, talked about today in the Twitter files thread, um, ex one of their recommendations was that the FTC be empowered uh, to, get, uh, to have unlimited power to search uh, all data of uh, private companies so that they could more freely and more accurately search uh, the speech of ordinary citizens. So, so as we're trying to put downward pressure on the government's expanding authority to be able to engage in what we see mostly from dictatorships, what you're reporting and what you're observing is that actually they view this as a growth industry, the information business, right? This, this yes. censorship industrial complex is a growth industry to the government. I think the key thing also, yes, and the thing to understand is that NSF... Is new, how, what is NewsGuard, and how are they part of the censorship industrial complex? Yeah, and we, by the way, we talked about Richard Stengel. He's on the board of NewsGuard. NewsGuard and the Dis Disinformation Index are both U.S. government-funded entities who are working to drive advertiser revenue away from disfavored publications and towards the ones that they favor. This is... Uh, now, you totally know, what I'm used to in this town is government officials pick their favorite outlets and they give them the best scoops and they give them the best stories. And there's a fusion of media and government that has long made me uncomfortable. What, but what you're describing now is literally the directing of revenue to certain media companies over other media companies designed and implemented with U.S. government funding and support. That's right. I, 
that, that is an astonishing, if we do not take a look at NewsGuard, we, we have failed. And you talk about the brave reporting that occurs and what it subjects you to. I would suggest there's also political bravery that I have observed. While we've only heard from Democrats on this panel attacking you, discrediting you, a lot like they've tried to attack and discredit FBI whistleblowers who are truth tellers, there are brave Democrats who still believe in free speech, and I would advise my colleagues to look at the comments of Ro Khanna, who has been deeply, deeply concerned about this weaponization of government, and he believes these Twitter files are indeed worthy of our focus and our energy, and that is exactly what we are going to do. I yield back. I, th <clears throat> I think the gentleman would now recognize the gentlelady from uh, right. New York. I, I, I still have my five minutes, Mr. Chairman. Oh, that's right. I forgot. Uh, I understand why well, you may not Mr. Mr. Because uh, you were yielded five. The gentleman from New York is recognized for five minutes. Thank Excuse you. me. Mr. Schellenberger, I may have misheard earlier, but is it your testimony here today that you disagree with the two indictments by Special Counsel Robert Mueller that definitively established that Russia interfered in our 2016 election through social media disinformation and a hack and leak operation? No, I don't disagree. Okay. Mr. Taibbi, do you disagree with those two indictments? Well, I don't, indictments aren't a thing to disagree Do you disagree, there are about 40 or 50 pages. Do you disagree with the evidence outlined in those indictments? Well, indictments are just charges when-, when I when just the, asked you, do you disagree with the evidence included in those indictments, yes or no? I'm not on the jury of that case. I couldn't possibly say yes or no. Okay, because you said earlier, I believe, that you did not see Russia, you, you could not confirm that Russia interfered in our election in 2016, that you don't believe that. Is that your testimony here today? You don't believe that they did? I think it's possible that they, they may have on a small scale, but certainly not to what's been reported. What's been reported or what's been included in the indictments? Well, again, indictments are allegations. They're not proof. And I understand. In, in, it's a pretty in, detailed allegation. In so the Mueller indictment, should, by the way. You should go read the indictment and then come back and tell us if you actually think there's no proof of it. Well, but let me move on. Some, some of those, just, some let of me those move on, please. by the please. way, when please, they Please, let me move on. That's how this works. You should know that by now. So do you disagree with the special counsel Mueller's conclusion in his report Mr. Taibbi, that the Trump campaign knew about Russia's interference, they welcomed it, and they used it for their benefit. You have no reason to disagree with that, don't you? You have no information. So after that foreign interference in our 2016 election, Twitter and other social media companies naturally wanted to work with the intelligence community to stop Vladimir Putin from interfering in our elections again. Mr. Taibbi, do you think it's a legitimate pursuit of the FBI to try to stop foreign interference in our elections? Again, sir, will I be allowed to answer this question or? or it's a yes or no question. Do you think it's a legitimate pursuit of the FBI? It's not a yes or no answer. It depends. No, 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 no. I'm not asking how. I'm saying, as an objective, do you think it's a legitimate objective of the FBI to stop foreign interference in our elections? I think it's a legitimate objective to stop actual foreign interference. Okay. I mean, I don't know what the difference is, but that's fine. Well, so the, since Russia it. used social media disinformation, according to Special Counsel Mueller, I understand you may disagree with the uh, allegations, to interfere in our 2016 elections, are you trying to say that the FBI had no basis to inform social media companies about 
efforts to potentially interfere in our, in our elections after 2016? I can tell you that I, that I read internal Twitter emails where Twitter expressly talked about the fact that the FBI couldn't possibly know more than they did about whether or not there was Russian interference and that, in fact, even they couldn't determine which accounts were actually IRA and which ones weren't. Okay. I, I understand you like to filibuster. That was not an answer to my question, uh, but I'll move on. Um, Mr. Schellenberger, in all of the emails that you reviewed, did the FBI ever direct Twitter to take down any accounts or remove any posts? Yes. They directed Twitter to, to remove them, or they said these may violate your terms and services? Yes. I think that's, a, Which? I think that's an accurate use of the word direct. They said these may, they, these yeah. may violate? You think that the same saying that yes, these I may do. violate your terms and conditions is the same as directing them to take an account down? Yeah, I mean, I think if a police officer says, All right, well, uh, that's, you broke, that, the, that, you broke that's the law. That's very helpful. That's very helpful. I'm, I'm glad to know that you think yeah. flagging something for a private company to make a decision about what they should do is a direction. Now, Mr. Chairman, yeah. you have repeatedly said that this committee is all about protecting the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. And what's unfortunate here is that we are talking about Twitter and that we are not talking about Republican government officials around the country who are banning books. And we are not talking about Would the Donald gentleman yield? No, I will not. And we are not talking about Donald Trump jailing his former counsel to prohibit him from publishing a book that the president did not want. The former president literally jailed his enemy. And we're here talking about Twitter. Twitter. And even with Twitter, you cannot find actual evidence of any direct government censorship of any lawful speech. And when I say lawful, I mean non-criminal speech because plenty I'll of give you speech one. is non-criminal. I'll give you one. The gentleman's time has expired. I'd ask unanimous consent to enter into the record the following email from Clark Humphrey, Executive Office of the Presidency, White House Office, January 23rd, 2021, that's the Biden administration, 4.39 a.m. Hey, folks, this goes to um, Twitter. Hey, folks, wanted to use the term Mr. Mr. He used, they used the term Mr. Mr. Goldman just used. Wanted to flag the below tweet, and I'm wondering if we can get moving on the process for having it removed ASAP. Boom. That is. Could you read the below tweet? And then if we can keep an eye out for tweets that fall in this same genre, uh, genre that would be great. This is a tweet on ve the very issue that Ma uh, Thomas uh, can you just, brought. For I the fullness of the record, can you re re uh, read the, because I've not seen this, can you read the tweet that it's referencing? I don't have the tweet here with me, but the gentleman's oh, point was, w tell us, you said no time did government try to tell uh, Twitter to take that, to explicitly remove something and- No, I said explicitly says, remove lawful speech. Lawful speech. We're going to conflate. The First Amendment does not is not absolute. Twitter, this is something from Robert Kennedy Jr. But for so the record, I, I assume that's lawful speech. It's a point speech. of order, Mr. Chair. Because if Robert you, Kennedy Jr. said it, that's why it's lawful well, speech. Just a minute, I'll, I'll Mr. Goldman. Mr. All I'm Mr. saying Mr. is, you Chair? said no, at no time did the government explicitly say to take a tweet down. Here we have it, right here, Mr. from the Chair? White House. They they, did, they couldn't even wait two days. Two days into this administration, they were asked Twitter to Mr. take something Chair. down, and we will get you the underlying tweet. Thank With you. that, I recognize the gentlelady from New if, York. If, will you place it into the record as well, sir? The underlying tweet? 
Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, is talking about, uh, he's talking about Hank Aaron's death after he received the vaccine. That's what the tweet's about. We'll get, we'll get you a copy. Thank you. Um, Mr. Chairman, I would say one thing. That's, that's certainly lawful. Mr. Chairman, speech. I ask unanimous consent to enter the tweet that you referenced into the record of the committee. Without discussion. objection, we'll enter that into the record along with the statement from the White House, the Biden White House, two days into the administration when they're directly attacking people's First Amendment liberties. With that, I recognize the gentlelady from New York for five minutes. I want to yield to Mr. Johnson. Thank you. Just to point out quickly that Mr. Goldman is proving himself to be a master of obfuscation. He said, the First Amendment applies to government censorship of speech and not private companies. But what we're talking about and what the chairman just illustrated is that what we have here and what your Twitter files show is the federal government has partnered with private companies to censor and silence the speech of American citizens. I yield back to the gentlelady. I just came from a, an open hearing with FBI Director Chris Wray, and he said under oath that no one from the FBI communicated with Twitter regarding the Hunter Biden laptop story. Based upon both of your courageous reporting, can you address that? I mean, we, we saw, I mean, like I said, we, we, don't, we don't know. I mean, so at this point, we just have to take his word on it. But what we saw was a huge amount of FBI uh, communications to Twitter. We saw the former deputy chief of staff, the former general counsel showing up at Twitter right at the critical period. So I find a lot of suspicious activity. I would like to, I would like to, I would like to ask him a bunch of questions about that because I find it very suspicious and unresolved. Mr. Taibbi, do you have comments on that? Uh, we do know that there was a teleporter communication that had 10 documents in it uh, just before the story broke, but um, we don't know what those documents were, and so we can't suppose. Well, I don't take his word for it. We have lots of examples where uh, it has not been, uh, they have not been accurate from that particular agency when it comes to testifying before Congress. So it is our job in this committee to get to the truth, to sign sunlight and transparency for the American people. Uh, I want to ask you both about the Aspen Digital Hack and Dump Working Group, which involved an 11-day scenario in October 2020 that began with the imaginary release of falsified records, that's what they claim, related to Hunter Biden's controversial employment by the Ukrainian energy company Burisma. Right. This was if they knew, because they, they did know. So I would like your comments, Mr. Schellenberg, these were the files that you did extensive reporting on about how concerning this is and how this is truly the definition of the weaponization against free speech and suppressing accurate reporting. Yeah, so there's actually two things, and one of them we just discovered recently, which is that there was a Stanford uh, Cyber Policy Institute report, which said that, which was in menacing terms, telling journalists that they should abandon the Pentagon principle. Again, this is the, the Pentagon Papers principle. This is the idea that if, if Daniel Ellsberg brings you materials he's taken from the Pentagon about how the war in Vietnam is going, the New York Times and Washington Post published those. That was considered one of the greatest moments of American journalism. Here you have Stanford Cyber Policy Center saying, we should abandon that principle. You should instead make the issue about, you know, frankly, the theories about where it might have come from. Then you, had this, then you had the Aspen workshop, which was attended, by the way, by New York Times, CNN, Washington Post, Wikipedia, Facebook, Twitter, many other journalists where they basically, you read it, it's like a kind of programming of the journalists that they should not follow this long-standing journalistic principle of taking materials from a hack and leak or any other situation and take them seriously. 
So, I mean, you read this and it feels like a kind of brainwashing exercise that Aspen Institute and Stanford were, were, were running against American journalists Mr. and the social media companies. Mr. Taibbi, comments? Yes, I, um, I think, you know, there, there were a couple of moments in the Twitter files that really speak to a, a kind of larger problem. In the first Twitter files, we saw an exchange between Representative uh, Rokhana and uh, Vijaya God, uh, where he's trying to explain the basics of speech law uh, in, in America. And she's completely, she seems completely unaware of what, for instance, New York Times v. Sullivan is. Uh, there are other cases like Bartnicki v. Vopper, which legalize uh, the publication of stolen material. That's very important for any journalist to know. I think most of these people are tech executives and they don't know what the law is around uh, speech and around reporting. And in this case, and in 2016, you were dealing with true material. There is no basis to restrict the publication of true material, no matter who the source is uh, and how you get it. Um, and journalists have always understood that. Uh, and this has never been an issue or a controversial issue uh, until very recently. And by the way, just one quick thing I'll add. That's the exact same strategy of the malinformation misleading. In other words, they were saying, they were saying even if the material you think is true, it could lead people to have conclusions that we don't want them to have, and therefore you should change your journalism because of that. So this is, uh, we're so far down the slippery slope, you know, you've crashed at that point. I mean, it's, um, it's a disturbing trend in journalism, in social media, and in the relationship from the intelligence community to these organizations. How have you been targeted since the publication of the Twitter files? Generally, uh, time expired. We'll give a quick answer if we can. I mean, uh, it, uh, again, uh, I've known journalists who've suffered uh, real brutal harms in my career, so uh, they've said a lot of nasty things about me on Twitter, but um, it, it hasn't been so bad, uh, I would say. The FTC thing is, is the, the only thing that's legitimately concerning, and that's not really for my sake. It's, it's more because it's a general problem for journalists everywhere. I've been censored on Facebook since the year 2020 for writing accurate information in an article that went viral. I remain censored. They continue to flag warnings on posts that I write that have nothing to do with the environment. And uh, there, we now know that one of the US government funded organizations has put out a report that specifically targets me and, and, and presents disinformation about my own position on climate change. And so I've got a lot at stake here. You'll back. Mr. Chair, may I ask unanimous consent um, to enter into the record a letter dated June 25, 2020 to Mark Zuckerberg from Chad Wolf, the Acting Secretary of Homeland Security, in which he asked Twitter, asked Facebook to keep Americans safe by taking appropriate action consistent with your terms of service against content that promotes, incites, or assists the commission of eminent illegal activities. Those committed to protecting free exchange of ideas should not turn a blind eye to illegal activity and violence fermenting in your platform. This is after the summer in which Black Lives Matter protests took place. Without objection, gentlelady from Florida is recognized for five minutes. 
Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you to our witnesses for appearing here today. I know it doesn't feel exactly warm and fuzzy, but believe me, <laughs> I think what you guys are doing is very important. We're here to discuss the weaponization of government, and uh, I want to follow up on my colleague, Representative Massey's comments on the CDC. Up on the screen, you can see a email from October of 2020. This is from then NIH Director Francis Collins to Dr. Anthony Fauci. It goes on in to say this proposal, talking about the Great Barrington Declaration, is from three fringe epidemiologists who met with the secretary, and it seems to be getting a lot of attention, even a signature, a co-signature from a Nobel Prize winner. Key line in here that I would like to point out, there needs to be a quote, quick and devastating published takedown of its premises. I don't see anything like that online yet. Is it underway? Signed, Francis. Now, what I find interesting is if you fast forward into June of 2021, the Biden administration was raging at social media companies. There is communications that we can produce for the record that state we would like you to combat quote unquote misinformation. Now, we, thanks to the Twitter files, know that Twitter executives were using the term visibility filtering, and that really to the rest of the American general public was shadow banning, correct? Yes. yes. Okay. So all of a sudden, we saw a rash of blacklists created by Twitter at the highest levels that were taking down some of the signatories and creators of this very Barrington Declaration, correct? This is to both of you. I haven't seen that, but... Um, I haven't seen that either. So, would you agree that there was a blacklist created oh. in 2021? Sorry, yes, Jay Bhattacharya, the yes. Stanford professor who I don't think anybody considers a fringe epidemiologist, was indeed... I'm sorry, I, couldn't, I didn't piece it together. He's, he was indeed... Um, visibility filtered. Correct. And so this blacklist that was created that really was used to uh, deplatform, uh, reduce visibility, yes. um, create lists internally where people couldn't even see their profiles, that was used against doctors and scientists who produced information that was contrary to what the CDC was putting out despite the fact that we now know that what they were publishing had scientific basis and in fact was valid. A absolutely, and not only that, but these are secret blacklists. So Professor Bhattacharya had no idea he was on it. I mean, this is East Germany Stasi kind of behavior. That's what this is. And um, the Great Barrington uh, Declaration, by the way, I was skeptical of it at the time, but it actually now uh, looks pretty good in terms of how response to COVID, but even if it was totally wrong, it still deserved, I mean, this is the whole point of the First Amendment, is that Absolutely. I think we all have the experience of you're not right until you're wrong a lot. You know, you actually have to have that debate and that conversation. So by repressing that, we actually stifled, I think, a much broader conversation we could have had about how to effectively respond to COVID because they were secretly blacklisting people like Jay Bhattacharya. 
And I think to the bigger point that Americans are concerned about when it comes to the weaponization of government, this isn't Republican or Democrat issue, this is an American issue. You had individuals, millions of Americans, who in many cases were being mandated to take an experimental vaccine, and when those that wanted to consider taking it were trying to make an informed decision, you had opinions that were being silenced because it didn't fit a specific narrative pushed by the Biden administration, correct? Absolutely correct. And that's why we use the language of disfavored ideas and disfavored people, because it doesn't fall neatly among left and right lines. If there's anything going on here, it tends to be a more of a disproportionate blacklisting of, of more populist voices um, or just ideas that we would consider slightly outside of um, the Overton window, the mainstream opinion at the time, but the Overton window moves. And Correct. so the idea that you're just going to narrow the entire, what's acceptable on social media to what is mainstream at the time would basically freeze us and not allow the society to progress and to, for knowledge to grow and for the democracy to function. With the 14 seconds that I have left, Mr. Taibbi, if you'd like to weigh in on any of this that we have talked about and why this is a direct threat to Americans today, yeah. I would appreciate it. Just quickly, again, we yesterday discovered the, this email talking about the suppression of people telling their own stories of, uh, stories of true vaccine side effects. So these are people who are telling about their own experiences, things that, are hap that happen to them that are true, and they're being suppressed because what anti-disinformation does is the opposite of what the press does. They are aiming for what the narrative is, and they already know in advance what they're looking for, whereas a journalist goes into a story, does not know what the truth is. We often find that the thing we expect to find turns out to be completely different. They know in advance what they're looking for, and that's why this is so dangerous. My time has expired. I yield back. Thank you, too. Uh, the gentlelady yields back. I want to thank, um, I want to thank our witnesses for, um, for being here today. And, um, you know, I think maybe if we can get this right and stop this, and, and whatever it, what legislation, appropriation, whatever it takes, we can stop this. I think there, in the future, people will look back and, and look at your courage as people in journalism in the press to come here with what you've been facing, what you've had to endure, and now with the idea that the FTC is coming after you, um, that's, that's something that I think is pretty darn important and, and certainly noteworthy. So we appreciate you sitting here for two and a half hours, uh, taking the questions you did, but giving so much valuable information to this committee, who is certainly on our side, committed to protecting the First Amendment and people's right to speak. So that concludes today's hearing. Again, we thank you both for being here. Without objection, all members will have five legislative days to submit additional written questions for the witnesses or additional materials for the record. Without objection, the hearing is adjourned. Thank you, sir.